Again, thank you for letting me and Diane be with you today. It's a joy to always be with Willow Avenue and in Cookville, Tennessee. This is a beautiful part of the country, and we are very thankful for the joy of being together with you. <clears throat> a little too loud? Am I, do I need to raise the mic anywhere? Okay, good deal. All right, let's go to that next slide, if we don't mind. Second slide of the three, and that's where we'll begin for our Bible class hour. We're still going to stay right here in Revelation chapter 20. Okay, that's it. That's the right one. You were right and I was wrong. What will heaven be like? I love the story of a little boy and his daddy. And they were walking under a starlit night and they were just chatting together as a little boy and a daddy, both proud of each other. And the little boy looked up at all of the stars twinkling against the blackened velvet of night and he said, Daddy, if heaven is so pretty on the wrong side, Man, what does it look like on the right side? Well, I'm not sure that we can answer that to the fullest. But the Bible does whet our appetite, doesn't it? What will heaven actually be like? As we step into Revelation 21, we need to remind ourselves that we are in apocalyptic literature. That's simply meaning writing that unveils. The book of Revelation is written, it is actually a cryptogram. It is written in code. And it was written that way because of what the church of the Lord was having to experience when John wrote the letter. You'll remember the, chapter, the book begins with chapter 1, and John himself is on the Isle of Patmos. Some have likened it um, figuratively to an Alcatraz. Patmos, an Isle of Exile, a penal colony, if you please, on a rock. And he was there simply because he was a Christian. And in face of all the persecution and all that they were having to face as New Testament Christians, God had a message for His people. They were being abused by Judaism. If I understand the book of Revelation properly, they were equally being abused by the Roman Empire. I find it easier to understand this great book of the Bible trying to work through the code, looking at this as God telling the church that they would be victorious and they would be victorious over those who are persecuting them, the Roman Empire. Be that as it may, I needed to say that because as we read Revelation 21, heaven is put before us in just a beautiful, beautiful fashion as the city of God, among other descriptions. Does that mean that heaven is a four-square city with a street of gold? 
And with the, the, the tree of life overhanging the street of gold, with a single river running up to the throne or from the throne, is that actually what heaven looks like? I can't tell you because this is in a book that is figurative. And I'm not sure that we need to say it is going to be this, a city, when just a few chapters earlier I'm reading about a red dragon at war with a woman and a child. And we say, now, now that is figurative, but come over here. Now, this is literal. And when we began to do that and play hermeneutical hopscotch, our understanding of Scripture becomes more confused and more confusing. So I like to think that I like to remember I'm reading a chapter where heaven is put before me in a symbolic word picture, but in a way that says implicitly, oh, you really, really want to go. You will remember that heaven is described symbolically as a house. In my Father's house are many mansions, rooms, dwelling places, tabernacles. You remember that heaven is set before us symbolically within the confines or the, 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 the concept of an inheritance. We've been begotten unto a living hope, unto an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fading out of way, reserved in heaven, Peter tells us. You remember that heaven is described as, we'll see here after in a minute, a bride, the bride of Christ. A new Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, but a new Jerusalem. So many different descriptions. I think that's important. Because there's another symbolic description that the Bible uses for heaven. And it's, it, it's, it's a figurative description, and we just need to think of it that way when heaven is set before us as a new heaven and a new earth. Rather than trying to bring our concept of heaven down to this idea of a renovated earth, renovated earth, let's just remember this is figurative terminology from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, as well as the writings of Peter, to again paint a word picture of a place we really want to be. So all of that said, let's turn to Revelation 21, and let this figurative book paint a word picture for us of what it will be like to be in heaven. I'm going to place my feet into the footsteps of that great gentleman that read Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4 earlier, and ask that you follow me as I read it again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, a bride made or adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. I am making all things new. And the word that is translated is one of the Two basic words for new in the New Testament, meaning not new chronologically. Hey, I have on a new suit, but rather new in quality. It's something never, ever, ever before experienced so fresh. And that's how this word picture of heaven begins in Revelation 21. I believe it's a place that we will want to go because when we try to answer this question, what will it be like? The first thing that is set before us is the concept of its bliss. And the bliss of heaven is set before us by telling us more of what will not be there rather than what will be there. Let me suggest as we try to flesh this concept out a little bit further. When we think about the bliss of heaven, the first thing that we find in our passage is, it is a place where there will not be sadness. Have you ever wept crocodile tears? Has your heart ever been broken? Have you ever been disappointed? in another, in yourself, in life, respectfully, even in God. No sadness. Again, let me direct your attention back to verse 4. He will wipe away, God will be with them, and He will wipe away every tear. Does that mean that my immortal, incorruptible body will literally weep celestial tears? Or is that figurative terminology simply to say there's just not going to be sadness there because God will see to it. No sadness. We'll keep reading and maybe we'll better understand. It says He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. No death. No trips to the funeral home to purchase a coffin. No funerals to arrange. No agonizing hours of brutal visitation. No emotional trip to and from the cemetery. No returning home to an empty house and a heart hollowed out by loss. No death. It's appointed unto man once to die, I read in Hebrews chapter 9, 27. As the body apart from the soul is dead, even so faith 
Apart from works is dead, I read in James 2.26. There is a time that we all have to face when our soul is either siphoned away from our body because of the infirmities of age or the infirmities caused by illness, or it is jettisoned from our bodies because of some traumatic experience. But there comes a time when our soul will make its exit from our bodies and the body will be lifeless. But in heaven, that experience will be no more. And we'll never have to bend over and kiss the forehead of one of the dearest persons on earth to us and sit around a Thanksgiving table with an empty chair and a silenced voice. No death, no sadness. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning. No more mourning. I read that passage and my mind goes over here to James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, about verse 9, I read about this idea of mourning. James chapter 4, verse 9. Be wretched. Wretched. Mourn, mourn, and weep, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Oh, wretched, mourn, weep, mourning, gloom, no laughter, no joy. That's not the picture that is painted for heaven. There shall be no mourning. And I keep reading... Mourning, by the way, translates a word that means grief. And it is the natural consequence of death. No more death, nor the emotional agony that comes from our trying to work through the death of someone that's close or the imminent death of our own body. No death, no mourning, nor crying. Crying. Crowgay. The best way to illustrate crying there, it's, it's not, I'm crying. But the word might be illustrated by a crow that calls amidst the treetops early in the morning. And that's what it sounds like. That's the crowgay. No more, oh, oh. That moment when you return home because of death and you're by yourself. And your heart is just literally ripped to sheds because of your grief. And you find yourself, I mean, you have already wept until you can weep no more. And now your grief overtakes you and oh, oh, no more. No more crying. Nor pain anymore. Crying, pain. Let's take that back to the way this verse begins. God will wipe away every tear. There are about seven different words for grief in the New Testament or in the Greek language. The two that are most prominent, klio and dakruo, if we were to distinguish between the nuance of both, Clio would be more like weeping out loud like a baby and weeping crocodile tears. 
Whereas dakruo is being just ripped up on the inside, silent weeping. Jesus wept, dakruo, silent weeping. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Loud cries, krauge, right there. Sounds like a crow. Loud cries and tears. The cognate noun for dakruo. He was ripped up on the inside in Gethsemane. And it sounded like a crow cawing amidst the treetops as he prayed. Well, here I am. I'm ripped up on the inside. And it's because of death and the grief that I feel from death. And you can hear me and I sound like Jesus in Gethsemane. And, and it's, it, is an, it is an agony that is equated with birth pains. No more. No more sadness in heaven. Won't that be wonderful? Amen? No sadness, but then I keep reading and I come all the way down to verse 22 and heaven will be a place where there will be no shrine. No religious shrine. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No shrine. There will not be a Jewish synagogue in heaven. With its holy ark containing the Torah. With its seat of Moses where one would sit and read sequentially from the Old Testament. with its cantors or pillars of prayer. No Jewish synagogue. There will be no Muslim mosque in heaven with its rows or stacks of shoes and its prayer cloths and its membar, elevated area for the Amman to stand. No Buddhist bot or temple with its bell tower, room of ordination, room of meditation. There'll be no Protestant sanctuary, no church building with its padded pews, its pulpits, its PowerPoints on a screen. There will be no shrine. And that's why it's called heaven. Because the shrine are the ones that are enshrined, the ones that get the attention. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Look at this bliss. No sadness, no shrine, no sun. I keep reading here. Verse 23 says, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Did you know that the sun is actually called a yellow dwarf? It's called a yellow dwarf because it is not among the hottest of stars in this ever-expanding universe. Even though it burns in its core due to nuclear fusion at about, I think it's 23 or 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, it's still not the hottest. And thus, it is yellow, a yellow dwarf. It's called a yellow dwarf because it's not the largest star 
in our ever-expanding universe. Even though you could put 1.3 million earths with inside the sun. But there will be no sun there. And that means no blistering, no sunspots, no weathered wrinkles, no melanoma. But the best of all, its bliss comes to us by being a place of no sadness, no shrine, no sun, and no sin. The last verse tells us again, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, unclean, detestable, false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. No sin in heaven. Won't that be wonderful? There'll be no sin in heaven because there will be no temptation in heaven. There'll be no temptation in heaven because there will be no Satan, the tempter, in heaven. Will I ever want to do what's wrong? Do you want to do what's wrong now? By and large, we do not. But we are human and we make bad decisions on occasion. Will there be any sin in heaven? This passage says, nothing unclean. We will get there as people who are clean. And the blood of Jesus got us in that condition. The blood of Jesus will keep us in that condition. We will not be unclean. We will not be detestable in our ways. We will not be false. We won't even be there if we're that way. Nothing but those who are in the Lamb's book of life. What a place of bliss. That's what it's going to be like to be there. But then, not only it's bliss, but it's beauty. Heaven is a place we should want to go because of its beauty. And its beauty is set before us again in cryptic fashion or in symbolic terminology in a variety of ways. First of all, I want you to see how massive this place is in the word picture that is painted. As we come down to verse 9, then came one of the seven angels. I've read about these seven angels earlier in the Revelation who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, the wrath of God, spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great... Don't read over that word. To a great high wall or high mountain. And showed me, New King James Version, the great... The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. Great high mountain. Great city. Great high wall. Megas is the word. Megas. Mega. That's a mega church. That's a great, that's a large church. Megas, a large mountain, a large city, a large wall. Massive. The beauty of heaven 
is set before me as a city of cities. It's not a stop or as you pass, blink and you miss it, stop in the road. It's not a little township, a village. It's not just a a little area out in the country that has a grocery store with a gas station. It's not a city. It's a city of cities, a metropolitan of metropolitans, a great city. It's a New York and a Detroit and a Los Angeles and a Miami, all wrapped together in one without sin, without a shrine. without the sun, and without sadness. It's a massive place. Is it a four-square city that is as broad as it is long and as high? It's set before me symbolically that way, but it is also set before me symbolically as this is one massive place. I can't imagine what it will be like when we get there. We walk through what are described as gates of pearl, and immediately we say, Wow. Wow. And we have all of eternity to investigate. It's massive. Not only is it massive, it is a place that is impressive. Note if you would, back in the earlier verses of the chapter, as we've already noted, it's described as a place that's fresh. Never, ever before experienced a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God. So here it is. It is a city that is set apart like none other. It is a New Jerusalem, which was, as we know, the religious and civil capital of the Jews. But it's a new religious and civil capital like none other ever experienced. And it's coming down away from the very presence of God with the presence of God. Now watch how impressive. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you had a church wedding, you remember the moment, don't you? You're standing up there, sweat's just beating up and trickling down your back and you're thinking, how long is this going to take? I mean, here came one beautiful bridesmaid and another and another and they're all decked out and you think, my, she's pretty. She's pretty. And all these groomsmen are coming and you know, why did I ask him? Why did I ask him? (laughs) And then all of a sudden the music stops and then it starts again. And at the right moment, there's a crescendo and the doors that had been closed are now once again opened. Whew. And there she is in the arm of her mother or her brother or someone that she's asked to walk her down the aisle, give her away. And at that moment, 
There is not another soul on the face of the earth that exists. You can hear yourself breathe as your focus on the love of your life. A bride that all that day was getting herself ready for one person in all the world. You. And in that impressive word picture, Heaven is set before us as a bride adorned, made ready for her husband. Wow. But then think about how attractive it is as we again press on through the chapter and come down to verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square in its length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, 1,380 miles, long, wide, and high, per this symbolic description. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, about 75 yards, three-fourths of a football field by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, transparent green. The second, sapphire, sky blue. The third, agate, milky white. The fourth, emerald, deep green. The fifth, onyx, a deep purple. The sixth, carnelian, a honey red. The seventh, chrysolite, a yellow green. The eighth, beryl, a sea green. The ninth, topaz, another shade of yellow green. The tenth, chrysoprus, a light green. And the eleventh, jacinth, a yellow orange. And the twelfth, amethyst, a deep violet. I pause, I think... Imagine all of those beautiful colors adorning the foundation of a wall, glistening, sparkling in the light of God's glory. I read those colors and I'm also reminded green must be our Lord's favorite color. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, not mother of pearl, but twelve pearls, each of the gate made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold. Not fool's gold. Not knockout gold. Pure gold. Like, who transparent glass. Think of how attractive and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon shining on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. The very presence of God and Jesus make that place shine and sparkle. But then last of all, I see its beauty by noting it to be a place that is very, very exclusive. We bought in Spring Hill, Tennessee, 
in a 55-plus community. It's wonderful. It's quiet. Everybody that lives there wants to do just what we want to do, sit in our lazy boys and sleep all day. It's great. But it is an exclusive community. You have to be 55 or older, and no one can live with you that is under the age of 19. Wow. Back when I lived in North Alabama, I was a member of the country club. And only because I could buy in for pennies and pay $25 a month. And that $25 paid for about $20 of, of food in the canteen. So I could play golf almost for free with all of my family. But it was the country club. It was an exclusive membership. You had to be a member to play golf out there. This is an exclusive place. Not as the old spiritual goes, not ever talking about everyone talking about heaven's going there, getting there, going to be there. It's an exclusive place. Go back to verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. How many lambs are there? There's only one lamb, and we know who he is. He's identified for us. Back in the earlier chapters of the book, a lamb that appeared to have been slain, but is alive again. And it reminds us of what John the baptizer said of Jesus when he saw him coming. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lamb. Only one lamb, Jesus Christ. How many wives does he have? The bride the wife, and that's how heaven is described. This isn't one of many wonderful places that people can go and, and, and experience God's presence. Well, if you're kind of sort of good, you get to go here. If you're really good, you get to go here. If you're just almost absolutely perfect, you get to go there. No, there's just one bride, there's just one wife for the one lamb. It is an exclusive place, and we've already found out who's going to get to go there. And so it's a place to which we should all want to go. How beautiful heaven must be. Sweet home of the happy and free. Fair haven of rest for the weary. How beautiful heaven must be. Don't you want to go? Let's bow. I'm not sure if you have someone picked out to say thank you for our food. So we'll bow, close with a word of prayer. And if you don't mind, I'll thank the Lord for our food. And that way, it's... Is that 11 o'clock? It's 11 o'clock and we'll be able to get back there for some soup and sandwiches. If you're our guest, I was a guest this time last year for soup and sandwiches. You really want to stay for that. It is special. The ladies and gentlemen here know how to put on a good feed. Let's pray together and thank the Lord for our time together and for our food. Dear Father, thank you for allowing us to know that we can be right with you through Jesus. Thank you for the assurance and the peace that comes from that assurance of knowing that we're saved and that heaven will be our home. 
We're not certain what all it will be like, but we know it will be wonderful to be like to be there because we're going to get to be with you and with Jesus and with your spirit and with the redeemed, with the Old Testament and New Testament Bible heroes, with the heroes in our lives that have touched us and influenced us for Christianity in days gone by. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that assurance. And thank you for the word pictures of heaven that you give us all through the New Testament in the words of Jesus himself and in the words of the Holy Spirit through his apostles and, and, uh, and spokesmen prophets. Father, we thank you for the food that we have that we're going to be enjoying in a few minutes, the soup and the sandwiches and the desserts. And thank you for the sweet men and the, the sweet women and the, the great men that have labored so hard to make that meal a reality. Thank you for the Willow Avenue Church of Christ, her elders, her deacons, and every member of her staff, preachers, secretary, the gentleman or lady that works hard to keep this wonderful facility clean. Thank you for allowing us to be your sons, your daughters, brothers and sisters who love each other because we love you so deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.